Hi, this is Lane from the Cold Case Crime Cuts podcast. The fourth word of this episode should have been Mason. We are happy to issue this correction. Support for National American Radio comes from the Julius B. Jones Access Group. Accessing Julius B. Jones for over 40 years. From Studio 7H in Lala Plaza, New York City, and in collaboration with NAR Studios in Los Angeles, California, I'm Mason Lane, and this is Cold Case Crime Cuts. Stories inched apart, stories coaxed outside. Restoring, repainting, and revarnishing faded shades of story. From first to last and back again. Stories that sing, or have been sung, in song. Listen out for them, maybe before you listen to this. Stories. Cold Case Crime Cuts is found in the umbrella of NAR, National American Radio, and it continues to stand by the Surfaced Air Sound Collective and the Steering Committee of Soluble Radio in the UK. Find them online throughout their ever-expanding portal of gateways, including now, but not limited to, TikTok. Episode 7, Smooth Criminal. Two years ago, a woman in Los Angeles was struck by an impossible sound. And of all the cases we've looked at in cold case crime cuts, that seems like the most. Because, in this instance, this is a case where the only witness testimony seems impossible. Not just improbable, that would be a different, less dramatic word, albeit one that starts with the same three letters. But impossible. Absolutely impossible. Home invasion is hardly an unusual crime in mainland America. As for Hawaii, well, that's another story for another time, requiring research that we didn't commission. But in mainland America, the statistics for home invasions are shocking, which is appropriate for something as shocking as a home invasion. The chances of someone discovering a stranger in their own home can be as high as one in one if they live in a shop or cinema lobby. But for most people, being struck down in your own apartment is less likely, but not out of the question. For the woman in Los Angeles that I mentioned earlier and who I am mentioning again, It was so likely, it actually happened. It was real, it was frightening, and the early indications were that it was her doom. This is the story of Annie, who was hit by something and was not okay. It's also the story of an apartment and a carpet stained with blood, which is a common indicator of a crime scene. The apartment was the location of that carpet and, by extension, the crime scene, although the apartment does not have an extension. What it does have are windows, and the question of who or what kind of criminal came through one of them remains largely unanswered, even though there are plenty of spaces on either side of the window for the answer. Add to this an unknown weapon used to strike Annie, and it becomes even less of an answer. I'm Mason Lane. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts. Hello, this is Andre Deterter from NAR's Washington Weekend Edition. And if you enjoy podcasts from National American Radio, we hope you'll take a moment to head over to widelyreceivedmeteor.com co slash radiopod and fill in a short survey. Widely Received is one of the world's leading analytical grouping hubs for creative content, and the answers you give will provide valuable insight into the sort of surveys our listeners respond to, and will help us tailor our output to what our audience soon will be. To say thank you, all survey respondees will be entered into a draw to win either an under-the-scenes tour of our newsroom and studios here at Lala Plaza, or a pair of tickets to NAR's Podcast in Front of You Festival at Carnegie Hall next October, featuring live editions of Cold Case Crime Cuts. Grill This, Grill This, 58 and Why Not, Wrecking the Leopard with Todd Hendricks and My Piano Teacher's Dungeon. 
That's Receive Media slash Radio Podcast and click on the survey before the end of the month. Festival lineup subject to change. What would you do if someone came in your window right now? Would you notice? Would you mind? But how about if someone came through your window? That might get your attention. I'm Mason Lane, and let me ask you this. Would you be okay with it? Most people would answer no to the last of those questions and don't know to some or all of the other ones. For one girl, Annie, whose name could derive from Anna, Annette, or Andrea, but almost certainly doesn't as far as we can ascertain, the answers are more complicated, with doubtful caveats and baffling subclauses like this one, and the one that is to follow soon, that is to say, this one. I should point out at this stage that there are elements of Annie's distressing story that are not for the faint of heart, and there are details of our own investigation that are loud enough to make a grown heart faint. This was not an easy podcast to make, and not just because we will have to describe things like rooms and sounds and talk to acousticians, whatever they may turn out to be. But it's an important podcast to tell, and I don't think it would be fair to Annie's legacy in this world to sugarcoat any part of what happened. I wouldn't want any part of what happened to be sugarcoated. That isn't Annie. Annie is alive, but that isn't her, although that is a woman playing Annie. This isn't a coincidence, and it's not the first of many in this episode. We'll hear more from her later. The real Annie didn't want to talk to cold case crime cuts. Her mother and publicist told us that she isn't yet ready to process what happened. It's all still too raw, with too much sugar already hovering around it like honey around a sweet dead wasp, and she is waiting for the right time to tell her lucrative story on her own terms and in her own long-form podcast interviews. Out of respect for Annie and her mother and publicist, I point them toward NAR's award-winning podcast, Wrecking the Leopard with Todd Hendricks, and then cease all communication. What follows, then, is an account of events from the ears of someone who was in a nearby apartment, near to Annie's, from an EMT who resuscitated Annie, from a member of the Los Angeles Police Department who has been investigating this incident since shortly after it happened, and from Chris Cornell University of Mid-California's Acoustic Template Unit, who have been incredibly generous with our money and their resources. You've actually already heard from them in this episode, although you may have missed it. They were the team who recorded our theme music hitting a window. Rewind a few minutes if you want to hear it again. It sounded like this. We'll be hearing more from those guys later in the podcast, possibly in part two. So, as they say all the time in Los Angeles, what's the 411 on this case? We know that late on one Saturday night, an apartment was broken into. We know that the assailant, before becoming an assailant by assailing its occupant, chased the occupant around the apartment, under a table, and into the bedroom, where he struck her to her doom, which went down. The assailant then escaped into the night, which had remained Saturday night throughout, without stealing anything or leaving any trace other than a bloodstain on the carpet. The occupant, Annie, was left in the bedroom unconscious, with a very faint pulse, and not okay. Annie's neighbor had heard sounds from the apartment and called an ambulance and the police, who arrived at the scene in the opposite order because police cars are often faster than ambulances. The neighbor managed to get into the apartment, carry the unconscious Annie to the elevator, and get down to the apartment block's outway to meet the ambulance, which they did, although only the neighbor greeted the ambulance, because Annie was unconscious. We came into the outway. When we got there, it was Sunday. It was a black day. Zardos Peeps was the first EMT on the scene. He is cool, calm, and collected by an Uber driver after this interview. In his day job, he gives instructions clearly and follows them precisely. 
but he isn't in a position to be doing either of those right now, as I'm asking questions, not giving or receiving instructions. I want to know more about his claim that it was a black day. We got into the apartment just after midnight. Ten past, I think. This is on Saturday. Well, technically Sunday morning, but yeah, sure. But the report said the incident happened late on a Saturday. Yes, the call came in at 11.55 p.m. on Saturday, and by the time we got to the apartment, it was Sunday morning. What a black day. Why was that? Because it was the middle of the night and the sky was dark. There's a contradiction here right away. Either it was the night, in which case it would be dark, or it was the day, as Zardas also says, when it would be light. There are too many shades of gray in Zardas' story. 1210 on a Sunday morning may have been black, but it's not the day. It's very much the night. There was nothing in the sky during that period of time that would have altered the amount of light from normal levels. Dr. Tara for now is a member of the Faculty of Astronomy at the Chris Cornell University of Mid-California. Her voice has been disguised by a phone line. There was no meteor shower, no full moon, no aurora borealis. Nothing at all out of the ordinary that night. So you say night, not day. That's interesting. Oh, well, I guess it was morning, yeah. A new day. Sunday. Yeah, that's right. And every 24-hour period, every day has some darkness in it. This is what I thought. The sun sets, and it gets dark outside. Not black, though. It gets very, very dark in some parts of the world, but not pitch black. And certainly not in Los Angeles. There are plenty of streetlights. It's actually quite hard for us to see some astronomical phenomena here in California, because there's so much light pollution. Dr. Fernow admits that the sky may have been too light for her to notice something like a meteor lighting up the sky. But this is enough for me to accept that Zardos may have been indulging in hyperbole when describing a regular dark night as a black day. So Annie's neighbor had found her and brought it down to the outway. We came into the outway. This is Zardos again. Was that through a window? No. The ambulance came along an access road to the apartment block. You entered through the outway. The signposting there is awful. At first, we actually went out through the inway and ended up exactly where we'd been before. Then we came into the outway. After getting lost, Zardoz administered mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on Annie. The mouths were his and hers, and he administered them together successfully. She regained consciousness, and there were sounding heartbeats to go with the resuscitation. I actually call it heart intimidation. It's a term some EMTs use for when we're basically scaring the heart into restarting. You have to be quite forceful with chest compressions. It's a kind of cardiothoracic bullying. One sounding heartbeat on its own would have been of little use, but the fact that they continued after the direct heart intimidation ended indicated that Annie was certainly alive, if not totally okay. She was alive, certainly, and remains so to this day, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. So, there you are. That's what happened. And in some ways, that's all, folks. But you wouldn't expect us to roll the credits now, would you? That's not the Hollywood way, even though this Los Angeles studio we've borrowed from an affiliate is located just off Hollywood Way. What we've actually done, rather well, I think, is rearrange the narrative arc of the podcast to give you the end of what happened before what happened, as a prelude to what will come before the after. It's a kind of dramatic technique. There are several big questions surrounding this case of home invasion, carved into the stonework like blood in a carpet. What kind of rough, violent criminal would come into a woman's apartment, strike her down with something, we don't know what, and then leave immediately without stealing anything? What did he use to hit her? The police have never been able to identify the weapon. And then there's the sound of the criminal's home invasive actions. That's going to be really important. I know, because I'm recording this at the end of the production process. The main section starts now and will continue in part two. But we are not yet at that stage, because this part is still stage one.
Over there. Uh, no, I'm sorry. There is the apartment block. It's on the corner of Reading and Otis, and I can't get any nearer to it than where I am now, which is over here. The building is currently sealed off from broadcasters, podcast journalists, and members of the public because it's being used as a filming location for the movie Annie's Story, based on the events I haven't yet really described. The apartment block is a good location for the production to be using, as it's standing in for the building that it actually is. Although I can't look inside Annie's apartment, I wanted to see the block from the outside with my own both eyes. Her former apartment is up there. No, I'm sorry, there, on the second floor. And there's a fire escape going past the window upwards and downwards. That's how the criminal got in and then got away after getting in and getting out. I'm also here, sorry, here, to meet with actress Jessica Babbitt, who is one of the few people to have spoken to Annie about her ordeal. She's playing the title role in Annie's story. That's Annie rather than story. The role of story has not yet been cast. I have told Jessica that I am making a behind the scenes podcast for the movie's PR and awards campaign. And who am I to tell her otherwise? I'm Mason Lane. I wouldn't want any part of what happened to be sugarcoated. I definitely think it's important to get it right. And how is Annie? She's, I think she's a strong character. She's not like a typical damsel in distress. She's complicated. There are things at work, things at home to deal with, you know? I think I really captured her, her vulnerability, her plight, her running under a table. And I guess I hope I can show that in the performance, how she's dealing with all that. Is she okay? Yes, exactly. I have to ask myself how she feels at each stage of that journey because of the intensity of my performance in the role. No, the real Annie. You've spoken to her. Is she okay? Oh, now? Yeah, sure. I guess. Whatever. Jessica embodies the body of Annie so completely that I have to remember that she's not the real one. I confess, I find her a bit annoying. So I'm pleased when she tells me that the movie will bypass cinemas and just be released directly to a Little Watch streaming service next fall. But it was good to confirm once again that Annie is okay. But now I need to tackle a witness from the ground up. Up to the second floor, in fact, which is where Bilson Galecki lived at the time of the incident. He occupied the apartment opposite Annie's, although he has since moved to somewhere with fewer crime scenes and film crews. Bilson was the only person who heard the sound of the criminal coming into the apartment through the window, and he also heard the sound of the struggle that led to Annie becoming temporarily doomed. It was about, oh, 10 to 12. This was on Saturday night? Saturday night, yeah. Not Saturday day or Sunday, the black day. Saturday night. I just got in from work. Bilson is a busy freelance audio describer for partially sighted audiences working across film, TV, and live theater. I ask him if he'll be describing Annie's story when it comes out, but he says no, owing to a conflict of hearing. Bilson is an unremarkable man in many ways. Unremarkable build, unremarkable height, yet remarkably shy often avoiding making direct ear contact. Normally I'm describing what I'm seeing, you know, that's that's my job, that's what I do, and I enjoy it. I think I'm pretty good at it, and yeah, it's good to know you're helping people. Although he's used to transforming visuals into words, using words to transform sound into words proved much more difficult for Bilson when describing what he'd heard in the apartment opposite his. His descriptions of the sounds of the criminal coming in and the struggle that followed baffled LAPD detectives, it seemed to defy all logic and sense, that sense mainly being the one of hearing. But he's always stuck by what he says he heard. So when the guy came through the window, it was, there was the sound of a window breaking, yeah, but it was kind of like there was a whole pile of them, like lots of windows smashing one after another. How many? 15, 20, maybe more. They got louder and louder. How long did it take? About 10 seconds, I guess. Something like that. I know it sounds weird. I know that. 
But honestly, that's how I would describe it. It was the sound of a crescendo. A crescendo. A crescendo. It's an extraordinary description, and police were probably bemused when Bilson used it to their faces. Unlike the music you're hearing under my voice now, which will have come smashing in like a Chinese in a bull shop, and then got quieter, a crescendo would have done the opposite. And by this point in the narration, my voice would be completely inaudible. Only one window was broken in Annie's apartment, and even then, only in the corner, near to the handle. The criminal presumably then reached inside, opened the window, and then climbed through, cutting himself on a shard of glass at some point in the criminal process, and bleeding onto the carpet. One broken window. There's only one broken window, yet just now, and also to the police, Bilson said that he'd heard as many as 20 crescendoing smashing window sounds, and the sounds connected to this case only get stranger from this point on. This is just the tip of what sounds like the iceberg. In part two of Cold Case Crime Cuts, we'll dig deeper into the mystery of Bilson's multi-glazing noise anomalies and find out if this criminal is perverted or just extremely clever. That's after a short break. Hi, this is Mason Lane from National American Radio's Cold Case Crime Cuts. Sorry to interrupt whatever great NAR podcast you're listening to right now, but I just wanted to let you know about the absolutely awesome range of ergonomic Nordic Executive Office Environment Sitting Support Solutions from Scandinorical. An ergonomic Nordic Executive Office Environment Sitting Support Solution doesn't have to be expensive, but when it is, you can really feel the difference in your spine and wallet. Scandinorical's dedicated workplace analytics team will analyze your back and room space and then cut down a tree in Norway based precisely on their findings before fashioning it into the exact furniture for both your shape and place. And because it's Scandinavian, you can rest assured that each and every utterly unique piece is equally long-lasting, severe, and cold. In 2016, they were highly recommended by the California Board of Backs. And right now, NAR listeners can get 10% off a purchase by visiting scandinorical.no and uploading an x-ray of your vertebral column. Thank you. Oh yeah, sure. I'm Mason Lane. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts. A sound at a window is usually something innocuous, like a bee banging into it, or maybe a small bird or a malfunctioning drone. But for Annie, alone in a second floor apartment late on a Saturday night, the sound at the window marked the start of a terrifying ordeal in which she was confronted by a criminal, chased under a table, into her bedroom, and then hit by, well, we're not sure. Hit by the criminal, yes, but with what? At the time, there were reports that she had been struck down, which was her doom. But that doom was short-lived because she didn't die, and an EMT resuscitated her, intimidating her heart into beating again. Annie is okay now, according to her mother, although okay is a relative term, as of course his mother. Annie's professional audio describer neighbor, Bilson Galecki, reported hearing a strange crescendo of consecutively smashing windows as the criminal came into her apartment, even though police discovered only one window that had been interfered with in that way. What followed, however, was harder for Bilson's ears to stomach. I've described hundreds of fights in movies or whatever, thousands maybe. You become used to saying, he hacks off the henchman's arm, or she punches him in the throat. You know, it's part of the job. But not being able to see it is tough. And I could hear the struggle going on in Annie's apartment, like a scuffle. I've, if I could have seen it, I could describe the heck out of it, you know? Sure, that makes sense. 
And how did the struggle end? It sounded like he'd struck her. With what? I couldn't see. Right, yeah. Again, look, I know how this sounds. Well, you may know how it sounds, but I need you to describe it. I mean, I know how this description will sound to other people. I want to know how it'll sound to me. It sounded like Annie had been struck by a crescendo. The same crescendo as earlier. The window. Yeah, it was like he'd hit her with about 20 windows, one after another. And that's impossible, I know. Bilson, are you okay? Hmm? Are you okay, Bilson? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm good. It's a lot to have to describe, you know? Yeah. Annie never saw the criminal's face either, assuming that he had one, and assuming that he was a he. He had not hit her with 20 windows, but with a single blow from something light enough to be portable, but heavy enough to incapacitate someone with a name like Annie. Bilson's testimony about her being struck by a crescendo of windows seemed so unlikely that the police assumed that he was simply exhausted from over-describing that day and wasn't able to hear straight. Apart from the bloodstain on the carpet and the one broken window, there wasn't even any evidence in the apartment to suggest that someone else had been there, even though there had been. No fingerprints, no hairs, nothing at all. This seems unusual given that the criminal chased Annie under a table, into the bedroom, struggled with her, and then struck her down. Surely something of the criminal would be left behind. Yet police had little to work with. There had been no theft and the motive was unclear. There was no identifiable suspect other than the person who had actually committed the crime. But as there was nobody who could identify them, they simply weren't identifiable. After six months, the LAPD decided to put the entire traumatic incident down to some isolated pervert who had broken into an apartment, hit someone, and left. The incident didn't even inspire a wave of copycat crimes. A busted flush all round, and the investigation ended. Unlike this podcast, which will continue. I believe Bilson Galecki's story about the two crescendos of windows. Nobody who's lying would cry that close to such an expensive microphone. We'll come back to the criminal himself later, but first I want to concentrate on vindicating Bilson by investigating the criminal's weapon and the criminal's sounds. And that's where this noise comes back in. Courtesy of the Audio Template Unit at the Chris Cornell University of Mid-California. Our production team had continued to ask if we could see Annie's real apartment, but the producers of Annie's story, described by The Hollywood Reporter as a comedy drama about a single white female with dreams and a smashable window, refused every request. Our workaround was the team at the ATU at CCUMC, who were able to recreate the entire second floor of Annie's apartment block in their 20,000-square-foot acoustic chamber using building schematics, photographs of the crime scene, and the unbelievably vivid and detailed descriptions of Bilson Galecki. We got it as accurate as we possibly could, down to the tiniest detail. Professor Kedri Malahide is the director of the Acoustic Template Unit. He's in his early 60s, and he's eschewed the traditional white lab coat in favor of sweatpants and a lady's t-shirt bearing an arrow and a slogan reading, My eyes are up here. It's odd, but I don't mention it. We had to get everything exact. The right furniture, the right number of cushions on the couch, the right carpet. It all affects the sound quality and the space itself. Professor Kedry's team also found out that Annie had owned a cat up until a few months before the criminal struck. They discovered what type of cat it had been, rubbed a similar one all over the replica apartment, and then vacuumed up after it. The surfaces have to be the right roughness or smoothness because sound waves will bounce off them in different ways. We want to find out what could have smashed a neat hole in Annie's window near the handle, what it sounded like, and if there's a way of manipulating that sound to make it sound like 20 windows breaking in a crescendo. To make everything as real as possible, Kedri Malahide and his team set up microphones where Bilson would have been standing in his apartment when he heard the crescendos. The recordings of the experiment are taken from that perspective. The sound bounces waving across the fake hall into the fake apartment opposite, 
and into the real microphones, which are even more expensive than the one I'm using at the moment. We ordered, I think it was 50 windows for the apartment set, so we could just switch in a new one for every experiment. And we had a whole variety of items, all sorts. Remember, we're looking for something that's portable, that crescendos, that doesn't smash the entire window, and that could have been used to strike Annie. We attached each one to a pneumatic arm, so every item hit the window at exactly the same speed. Now, I've not heard these, but I know you have, and I know Bilson Galecki has as well. Yeah, he has, yeah. So don't spoil it for me, but is there something in these results? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's something. Oh, wow. So the first item we attached to the pneumatic arm was, um, actually, it was just a, a fist, a human fist. Oh, right. Yeah, the university teaching hospital sent it over. Some guy lost it while watching a movie about motorcycles. Great. Let's hear it. No crescendo. Nope, that's right. No crescendo. So we sent the fist back over the road, and the next thing we tried was a brick. Okay, sure. Let's hear that one. Oh, now, that sounded maybe a smaller hole in the window? That's good, yes. It was slightly smaller, but it was still far too large, and... No crescendo. No crescendo. But the interesting thing with that test is that the readings inside Bilson's apartment, the left channel showed a 0.077% increase in decibels after registering the initial impact. And this was something we noticed across a number of the items. We believe it's to do with... I decided to summarize my discussion with Kedgeri because it took almost an hour to listen to all 40 plus tests of things being propelled into Annie's apartment window. Left unedited, it would make for a very dry podcast. This was a different brick. This was a car battery. A gym weight. The team then tried throwing another pane of glass into the window, which seems like the most plausible option yet for creating a crescendo of windows smashing. But no, and various other household items prove equally unsuccessful at creating multiple window smashes, even though all would be light enough for a pervert to carry comfortably and yet heavy enough to knock out Annie, who is okay in case you're wondering. and none of them produce a crescendo. So we're getting a little frustrated at this point, you know? We tried 38 different items, uh -huh, but then uh -huh. item number 39 was this. Okay, let's just play item number 39. No crescendo. No, but it made exactly the right size hole in the window. Most of the glass remained intact. The 39th item propelled through the window was a home wireless smart speaker made by an extremely successful global company that does not sponsor this podcast. And you know, it was just one of those things that clicked. I suddenly realized we've been looking at this the wrong way around. Instead of the window crescendoing, what if the object itself was making the crescendo? What if the sound of the real window smashing was just part of the crescendo? So we programmed the smart speaker to play a crescendoing sequence of smashing window sounds, and then we threw that through the window. This was that. That was it. I mean, when I heard that, that was... Just spooky. It was exactly right. I'm Mason Lane, and that was exactly right. After hearing Professor Kedgeri's recording of the smart speaker coming into Annie's apartment window, Bilson is in no doubt that this is what happened on the night she was struck down. I, I don't know what else to say. That, that was the sound, both times. The first time when the criminal came in, and then when he struck Annie. It's amazing. I, I don't know how to describe what it was like hearing that again. I ask him why not. Because that's not something I can see. So maybe that's it. Maybe the home invader smashed a hole in Annie's apartment window using a smart speaker playing a crescendoing loop of smashing window sounds. 
disguising the exact moment of impact and creating a smokescreen of sound to confuse the eagle-eared Bilson in the apartment opposite. The criminal then reached through, opened the window whilst catching his arm on some broken glass, and came into the apartment, bleeding messily, but not fatally so, onto the carpet. He then chased Annie underneath a table and into the bedroom and hit her once with the speaker, knocking her out and triggering the sound file of crescendoing window smashes to play again. There's one more thing to check with Professor Kedgeri. I want to know if it's possible to knock someone out with that model of smart speaker. Oh yeah, sure. When we've done those two tests with it going through the window, we tried it out on a one of the lab assistants. He went down pretty hard, and yet he stayed down for a while. But like I said, the teaching hospital is just across the road from the lab. He's okay now. There you have it. It's only a theory, of course, but it's the only plausible one that takes into account what Bilson swears he heard. And we spent a significant portion of our series budget on organizing those acoustic tests, so that proves that we're convinced. That said, we made some money back when the film company shooting Annie's story decided our reconstructed apartment was better than the real one and moved locations. Although we had to pay for the removal of the pile of broken human arms, bricks, car batteries, gym weights, fish tanks, woodpeckers, replica bassoons, industrial magnets, and feminist t-shirts ourselves. But though we've literally smashed a significant amount of way into this case, it's important to remember that we're not all there yet. I'm here, of course, in Los Angeles at the sister studios of NAR, National American Radio. But don't forget that we still haven't figured out the whole who of the case. Who was the criminal wielding the speaker? the one who left the bloodstains on the carpet and nothing else in the apartment. They're like a ghost in all of this. A ghost that bled a bit, slipping into and out of an apartment and away into the black night and or early day of Sunday morning, carrying a smart speaker. Who was he? What kind of criminal would commit such an apparently random, pointless act of violence? I'll be picking an appropriate adjective for him in part three. The following is paid promotional content by a regional podcast intermediary and is not affiliated with National American Radio or its subsidiaries. This is Eight Rescued Candles, the new album from Portobello Face Cream, featuring the number one singles Delilah Can't and Full Flagons of Liquid. Critics are calling Eight Rescued Candles all sorts of things. Own it now. Think about your average dining table. I'm Mason Lane. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts from NAR, National American Radio, and Hello Back. For this episode, we've been in Los Angeles, where OK Now Annie was struck down in her apartment by a criminal who hit the exact moments of his crimes with an intricate collection of false smashes and crescendos emanating from a smart speaker, a smart speaker that he used as a weapon on Annie. But the criminal himself escaped without being seen and has never been found, located, or picked up. Apart from a bloodstain on a carpet, there was no evidence of him ever having been in there. And what kind of criminal is able to do that? Annie never gave us any description of the criminal. When he came into her apartment, all her focus was on trying to run under a table and then realizing that she was unable. Detective Lilliput Footloose is a member of the LAPD's Violent Crimes Division. She places her gun on the table in front of her before our interview starts. It's hard not to be intimidated by that, but I'm now back in New York, talking to her from our studios in Lala Plaza. So all she's really doing is intimidating the studio engineer in Los Angeles. Before we get on to the criminal... I want to know why Annie's attempt at running under a table failed. 
Well, listen, Mason, think about your average dining table. I do this, and I suggest that you do too. And then think about what's under it. Is it a clear space? Could you get through it quickly? I guess not. What else? You'd have the chairs pushed under it. Exactly. And Annie obviously didn't think about that before trying to run underneath the table. And that's another point. A dining table is what? Height-wise? Table height. Exactly. Could you run under it? Maybe on your knees? Or you could make a running dive? Correct. Is she a midget? No. So what do you think happened? What I think happened is that she tried to run under the table, couldn't on account of it being the height of a table, so maybe went to fast crawl her way under and then fast crawled headfirst into the dining room chair legs. I get a sense that Detective Footloose has been torturing herself with the details of this case, possibly while staring grimly into a bathroom mirror somewhere, possibly in a bathroom. I ask her if under the table was where the case went cold. Yeah, that's all we have. She tried to run under the table. He, the criminal, couldn't see that she was unable. So she ran into the bedroom and was struck down to her doom. Although she was okay. And apart from those details, we got nothing. We got no goddamn idea who this criminal was. There are no witnesses. He didn't leave any skin cells or hair anywhere. The only thing he left in the apartment was the blood stain on the carpet. And the only thing we found out from that was the make of the carpet. How unusual is it to find a crime scene that clean? When we know there's been a physical altercation, we find something. Always. At the very least, there are skin fibers or clothing cells. And we usually find individual hairs. But in Annie's apartment, a blood stain and then nothing. Apart from the blood stain, this criminal may as well have never existed. But I keep thinking of that famous quote by Arthur Conan Holmes. Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, my dear. There was a criminal in that apartment, and there was a struggle of some kind, a struggle that would normally result in hair and skin being flung around with wild abandon. If there weren't any of those, we have to wonder if that is because the criminal had ensured that there wouldn't be, and what would be the best way to ensure you didn't leave any hair behind? Anyone? Bilson? Uh, um, I guess that would... The criminal must have been completely smoothly hairless. Silky smooth. Although silk would have left behind some fibers, and the criminal did not. And although not every collection of skin fibers contains enough DNA to prove an ID, there were no skin bits at all found anywhere in the apartment or outside the window or on the fire escape. It's hard to prove this, but it's possible that this criminal, in addition to being completely hairless, may have been laminated, or at the very least, shrink-wrapped like an overstuffed suitcase with a broken zip at an airport. No hair to leave behind, and no chance of any pesky skin fibers remaining behind and not allowing him to have gotten away with it. And when he cut himself on the window coming into the apartment, it must have punctured right through the laminate, or shrink wrap, but the criminal had the presence of mind to take the offending piece of glass with him. I asked Bilson if he heard any squeaking noises, such as you might get if you were shrink wrapped and trying to chase a woman through an apartment, in addition to the window breaking crescendos that he heard. No, I didn't hear anything like that, I'm sorry. No squeaking, so therefore, a laminated smooth criminal seems more likely than a shrink-wrapped one. I present my theory to Detective Footloose, but she politely but firmly waves me away across a 3,000-mile-long ISDN line. Look, I appreciate your help, really, but Los Angeles is a big place. You know, a lot of hairless people out there. Yeah, I get that. And you'd be looking for a totally hairless person who had cut themselves on a window and who had bought a battery-powered smart speaker and an oversized laminator. Yeah, it's, uh, (laughs) that's, uh, just L.A. You know what I'm saying? L.A. stands for Los Angeles. And yes, I do know what Detective Footloose is saying. She's saying in the most delicate way possible to let this case grow cold gracefully. I have one more stab at it with Zardos Peeps, the heroic EMT from earlier who revived Annie with mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and heart intimidation. 
So after you went out of the inway again and drove Annie to the hospital, did you then go back out that evening? That morning. Sunday morning, remember? Whichever. Yes, I did. My colleague and I picked up, I think, three more people before our shift ended at 8 a.m. Was it still a black day? No, it was pretty light by then. And were any of those people that you picked up completely smooth, hairless, and recently laminated, but with a tear in it where they'd cut themselves? I would need to check with the hospital, but I think one may have been bald, but it was a burn or an accident where he'd been watching a movie about motorcycles or something. There was no one with just a cut. What about someone laminated? This is L.A. Who isn't laminated half the time? Doesn't really narrow it down. Picked up one naked guy once with a fish plastic wrapped to his main genital. Zardos is right. The laminated thing is a dead herring. And that really is this whole case in a nutshell. A nutshell in which nothing, no thing, quite sticks properly. It's still a completely open nutcase, and with each passing day, black or otherwise, it gets colder and less sticky. There are hundreds of murders in Los Angeles every year, big ones, that need solving. This wasn't even a murder, or a burglary. If the criminal had wanted to steal, say, a dining chair with a dent in one of the legs, there was nothing stopping him, apart from how to carry it while laminated. But he took nothing. It may not have even been attempted murder. All this guy, if it was a guy, did really did, was make himself smooth, strike down a woman with a smart speaker in her bedroom, and then run away. As far as niche perversions go, it doesn't really go all that far. Yes, Annie is okay, but perhaps the last word in this podcast should go to the person who now has to carry the weight of Annie's hopes and head injuries on her shoulders and in front of the cameras. The actress playing her in the movie Annie's Story, Jessica Babbitt. I just read the script and thought like, wow, this is me. Like the whole character. It really spoke to me on a human level. I was like, oh my God, how can I inhabit both of these people at the same time? I sobbed during the table scenes. And then after each take, I had to have a hot bath to begin to climb back in my own body because I was like, I throw the smart speaker through the studio window myself. So annoying. Cold Case Crime Cuts is presented by me, Mason Lane. Our program associates are Lance Fuller, Alexander Metaxa, Jake Yap, Alex Sivright, and Naomi Danny. The writers are John Holmes and Gareth Saradig. The cries of their ancestors were supplied by Geraldo Aquamineral and Kate Kudos. Join Kate and guests every week on our YouTube channel for A Deeper Crime, where they discuss the making of each episode in miniature. That's at youtube.net forward slash cccc with three Cs. Original music by Jake Yap. Associate Associate Cliff Path Manathan. Album artwork by Simon Fowler. Our engineers are Tony Chernside and Louis Blatherwick. Executive Toys by Jeff Posner and David Tyler. Professor Kedgeri's T-shirt by Hot Girl Shirts, with a Z on the end of girls and shirts. Cold Case Crime Cuts is produced and directed by John Holmes. Thanks to Unusual Productions and Audi. This podcast seeps out from between the studios of National American Radio at 10 Lala Plaza, New York City, and 188 Rubber Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, and it is a very proud member of the Surface to Air Sound Collective and the UK's very own Soluble Radio. This is an urgent message on behalf of Julius B. Jones. Julius has not been seen in public now for almost 40 years. We believe that the Julius B. Jones Access Group is holding him against his will at a ranch in the San Fernando Valley. Anyone with any information should contact the Bureau of Missing Persons.